Hi everyone. Thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we spoke about the Danelaw, that middle bit of England that was under Viking control for just shy of 100 years from the mid-9th century onward. This area was set up at the end of the fighting between King Alfred and the Viking chieftain Guthrum, and it was ruled by Scandinavian rather than Anglo-Saxon law. Despite the treaty between the Anglo-Saxons and the Scandinavians, the century of the Danelaw was characterized by repeated warring between the two sides, and the West Saxon border kept creeping further and further north until the whole of the Danelaw was finally swallowed up by this new political entity called the Kingdom of England. Today, we'll focus on the northernmost part of the Scandinavian-controlled British mainland, Northumbria, and its metropolitan heart, the city of York, known to the Scandinavians as Jorvik. With the possible exception of Dublin, a city with close ties to Jorvik, this was the most important city under Scandinavian control in the British Isles, and it had some 10,000 inhabitants, an impressive amount at the time. The Viking kings in Jorvik controlled not only the city itself, but also a sizable chunk of the surrounding land of Northumbria, roughly equivalent to modern-day Yorkshire. It was ruled by a Viking king from 866, and it was definitely lost to the Anglo-Saxons, in 954. Episode 8, Jorvik. It was the Romans who founded the city of York, or rather, they set up a legionary camp there that they called Eboracum. With time, this military outpost developed into a significant urban center in Roman Britain. And incidentally, no fewer than two Roman emperors actually died in Ibaracum, Septimius Severus and Constantinus Chlorus. And it was here that Constantinus Chlorus's more famous son, Constantine the Great, was proclaimed emperor. When the Romans eventually lost control over Britain, Ibaracum declined in importance and population, but the city wasn't completely deserted. Eventually, it started to bounce back from the post-Roman depression, and it became the seat of an archbishop in the year 735. Alcuin of York, whose acquaintance we made when we talked about the attack on Lindisfarne, was apparently quite impressed with the city, and described it as the pride of the realm, and a safe place to drop anchor for ships from far-off ports. Whatever Alcuin thought, it wasn't a very safe place for those who happened to be present in the city on All Saints' Day in the year 866. Just as most of the city's leaders were packed into the cathedral to celebrate the holiday, a Viking force attacked. It was Ivar the Boneless and Havdan, who, thanks to the horses King Edmund of East Anglia had provided, had arrived at the gates. The unprepared Northumbrians, who were also internally divided between rivaling factions vying for the Northumbrian crown, didn't stand a chance, and the city fell to the Vikings, who quickly made themselves at home in the city they called Jorvik. But the previous Northumbrian masters didn't give up so easily. The rivals for the Northumbrian throne, Ella and Osbert, declared a truce and joined together to evict the Scandinavian invaders. They attacked Jorvik in early 867 in an attempt to recapture the city. Not only did the attack fail, but Ella and Osbert were both killed. And after the death of both pretenders to the throne, the Northumbrian resistance collapsed the Vikings installed a puppet king called Egbert to nominally rule over Northumbria and to do the dirty work of collecting taxes that the Vikings could then bag. Another attempt 
at shaking off the Scandinavian yoke was made in the year 872, when the Northumbrians temporarily managed to expel the Vikings from Jorvik. But they were soon back again, and by 875 they had also done away with the charade of a local puppet king. Instead, we have a Scandinavian on the throne in Jorvik. Last time, we followed the Viking warlord Guthrum about, as he and the great heathen army fought against King Alfred of Wessex. Eventually, Gotham settled down to rule East Anglia, as I'm sure you all remember. I just mentioned briefly that his colleague Halfdan set off north, and he and his men disappeared from our narrative. Well, today it's time to pick up that thread again, because it was Halfdan who arrived in Northumbria and took control over Jorvik in 875. According to legend, this Halfdan was none other than Halfdan Ragnarsson, one of the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok. There is even a theory arguing that Halfdan and Witzerk are the same person, because they never appear together in any sources. Any source that mentions Halfdan Ragnarsson doesn't include Witzerk and vice versa. The proponents of this theory like to point out that Halfdan was a common name in Scandinavia at the time, whereas Witzerk literally means white shirt and is just a nickname, possibly meant to distinguish this particular Halfdan from all the other Halfdans milling about. But Halfdan's reign didn't last long. The first Viking king of Jorvik was expelled already in 877. Halfdan then crossed the Irish Sea in an attempt to follow in the footsteps of his supposed brother, Ivar the Boneless, and captured Dublin. What followed was the clash of the fair foreigners against the dark foreigners that we covered in episode 4 dealing with the kings of Dublin. Halfdan, who was one of the dark foreigners, was unsuccessful in his bid to take Dublin, and he was killed in battle. Those of his men who survived left Ireland and made their way back to Northumbria via Scotland, killing Constantine I, King of the Picts, on the way. Meanwhile, back in Jorvik, it seems that the locals didn't feel the need to replace the ousted Halfdan on the throne until the year 883, when a certain Guthred Hardaknutson was made king. According to legend, Guthred's rise to power was something of the ultimate rags-to-riches story. In his history on the Church of Durham, Simon of Durham relates how none other than St. Cuthbert himself appeared in a vision to Abbot Idrid at the monastery at Carlisle, close to the border with Scotland. The saint instructed him to go to the Viking army and tell them that a boy called Guthred Hardeknutson, whom they had sold as a slave to a local widow, should be made their king. And apparently Cuthbert got, got his way. Abbot Idrid found the widow and bought the slave Guthred from her. Then he managed somehow to convince the Vikings in Jorvik to make Guthred their king. Or that's at least what Simon of Durham would have you believe. Why a Christian saint would go to all this trouble for a man who probably wasn't even baptized remains unclear. But unsurprisingly, once Guthred actually became king, he had excellent relations with the church in general and St. Cuthbert's monastery in particular. He made sure to restore to the monastery what his pagan compatriots had destroyed or stolen, including land. He even had a church built where St. Cuthbert's relics were placed for a while. Simon of Durham repeatedly makes the claim that King Guthred was a former slave that was elevated to the throne thanks to St. Cuthbert, but that doesn't necessarily make it true, or even plausible. It has been suggested, however, that there is a kernel of truth in this legend, and that Guthred might have been a pretender to the crown who fell into Anglo-Saxon captivity. He was later released for ransom, possibly by members of St. Cuthbert's community, we don't know, 
who later embellished the story to glorify their saint and thereby, coincidentally, increase their own power and influence. Whoever he was, Guthred must be characterized as a successful monarch, especially compared to the other Viking kings of Jorvik. The community of St. Cuthbert repaid the benevolent King Guthred by helping him to expand Scandinavian control northward into Bernicia, a part of Northumbria that had managed to escape the grip of King Halfdan when the Vikings had established themselves in Jorvik. It's also believed that it was Guthred who started to mint coins in Jorvik. Even though he probably was born a pagan, it's more than likely that he ended his life as a Christian. His close ties with the community of St. Cuthbert certainly suggests that he had been baptized, and it would make sense politically as well since many of his subjects were Anglo-Saxon Christians, and it might have been easier for them to accept a Scandinavian king if he at least shared their religion. Guthred reigned for over a decade and died on August 24th in the year 895. He was buried in York Minster, that is the cathedral itself. It seems unlikely that a non-Christian would have been afforded such an honor, no matter how highly St. Cuthbert might have thought of him. After Guthred's death, a long list of Viking kings followed on the throne in Jorvik, but none of them seems to have been able to hold on to his crown for more than a few years. In general, the political situation for the Vikings in Jorvik was far from stable at the dawn of the 10th century. A sign of how bad things had become was King Æthelstan conquering Jorvik from the Scandinavians in the year 927. Æthelstan brought Northumbria back under English control and, as we talked about last time, his victory in the Battle of Brunenburg ten years later, in which he and his half-brother Edmund defeated King Olaf Guthfridsson of Dublin, didn't exactly improve the Scandinavian position in Jorvik. But, since Æthelstan died shortly after the battle, in 939 to be precise, and his successor Edmund only was a teenager at the time, the Anglo-Saxons weren't able to retain control over Northumbria. The Vikings were quick to act, and as soon as they learned about Edmund's rise to power, a new Scandinavian pretender to the throne in Jorvik crossed the Irish Sea from Dublin. There might actually have been two pretenders, cousins, confusingly enough both named Olaf, but since one of these Olafs died already in 941, we can focus on the surviving cousin, Olaf Sigtryggsson. At the death of his cousin, Olaf Sigtryggsson took control over Jorvik, and the people of Northumbria seemed to have been fine with that. They even elected him king over Jorvik. Now, exactly how big a proportion of the Northumbrians was actually represented by the people who elected Olaf Sigtryggsson king is unclear, of course. It could be a Scandinavian-style royal election, or more of a palace coup, or anything in between. Unfortunately, the sources don't really give us many details. There are indications, however, that also in this case, a man of the cloth stepped in to act kingmaker. This time it was Wolfston, Archbishop of York, who was a very influential figure in Northumbrian politics, who played a key role in Olaf Sigtryggsson's election. In the year 942, Edmund had been king of the Anglo-Saxons for three years already, and had gathered enough strength to attack the Scandinavians and try to reclaim the northern lands he had lost in the beginning of his reign. He recaptured Mercia and the five boroughs of the Danelaw, and his contemporaries were so impressed by this that someone composed a poem about it and it was included in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. But the war wasn't won yet. King Olaf reacted by raiding in Mercia, now under Edmund's control, 
and the following year, in 943, he marched onto Leicester, one of the five boroughs. There, he and Archbishop Wolfston were besieged by Edmund, who almost managed to capture the Viking king and his archbishop, but they succeeded in escaping the humiliation of falling into Anglo-Saxon hands. Later the same year, Edmund and Olaf reached a peace agreement, where Edmund recognized Olaf's reign over Northumbria, and even declared that they were allies. In an act reminiscent of King Alfred and Guthred, after the original establishment of the Danelaw, Olaf was baptized and Edmund became his godfather. This should probably be mostly seen as a political and not a religious act. Olaf might in fact already have been a Christian, but on the other hand, if he wasn't, this baptism certainly didn't turn him into a pious believer in Christ. As it turned out, sadly, the peace deal between Olaf and Edmund wasn't to last. Already in the year 944, Edmund once again invaded Northumbria and took control over Jorvik, ousting Olaf in the process. According to some sources, it was none other than Archbishop Wolfston, the very same cleric who had been instrumental in his election, who orchestrated his fall. A possible reason might have been Olaf's insincere Christianity, because the chroniclers described him as a deserter, possibly meaning that he'd abandoned Christ. On the other hand, this might also have been an excuse conjured up to justify the Anglo-Saxon invasion. Whatever the reason was, Olaf was deposed. But at least it didn't die, and he managed to escape with his life and found his way back to Ireland. Edmund might have triumphed, but he didn't live long to enjoy his renewed hold of the north, as he was killed already in May 946. Whatever hold Edmund got on Northumbria when he ousted Olaf appears to have been shaky, or at least passing, because uh, he most likely lost control over Jorvik even before his, he lost his life. At least, that's the impression you get from the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, because it describes how Edmund's brother and successor, Edred, travelled north and asserted his control over Northumbria. He also forced the political mover and shaker, Archbishop Wolfston, as well as the Northumbrian Council of Nobles, to convene on the Humber. There, they had to pledge their allegiance to King Edred, who probably thought, or at least hoped, that that would be that, and that he would be the uncontested king from now on. But already the following year, the people of Jorvik were at it again, taking themselves yet another Scandinavian king. This time, they had gone for a guy called Eric, Eric Bloodaxe. His real name was Eric Haraldson, and there are speculations that the herald he was the son of was none other than Harald Fairhair, the first king of Norway. There are also various speculations regarding the nickname Bloodaxe, but they all agree that Eric earned it because he was quick to chop people with his axe. Some claim that the chopping was merely done during extensive Viking raids all the way from the coast of France to Lapland in the northernmost part of Scandinavia. Others claim that he got the name Bloodaxe because he killed his brothers in order to succeed their father Harald as king of Norway. According to the version of history that claims that he indeed was the son and heir to Harald Fairhair, the Norwegians weren't all too happy with this brutal fratricidal Viking as their king. And when his one surviving brother, his younger half-brother, pointedly named Håkon the Good, returned to Norway, the Norwegian elites jumped at the chance to make him king instead of Eric, who promptly had to flee across the North Sea. 
but all of Eric's early life and career in Norway is unsubstantiated, even legendary, based on sagas written long after his death. It's only when he ascends to the throne of Jorvik that he emerges from myth and enters historical fact. Still, we don't know too much about him, but we can be reasonably sure that he was king of Jorvik because archaeologists have found coins minted in Jorvik bearing his name. King Idrid did not take this appointment of Eric as king lightly. In fact, he answered the disloyal Northumbrians who so recently had sworn an oath of fealty to him by immediately launching a destructive campaign of retaliation against them. Much like in the case of Olaf a few years earlier, it's likely that Archbishop Wolfston played a leading role in the elevation of Eric to the throne in Jorvik. Clearly, King Idrid thought so, because a part of his campaign was the burning of the important church known as the Ripon Minster, founded by St. Wilfred. The attack on this ancient church, a target with basically no military significance whatsoever, but loaded with symbolism, was aimed at Archbishop Wolfston personally. The Jorvik Vikings didn't take this attack lying down though, and Idrid's forces sustained heavy losses, especially as they returned southward. Nonetheless, Idrid threatened the Northumbrians that if they didn't renounce Eric and return to him, there would be hell to pay. The Northumbrians, many of whom weren't of Scandinavian origin, believed that Idris was serious. They forked up a handsome compensation and quickly and unceremoniously dumped King Eric. But instead of paving the way for a smooth return of Jorvik under Anglo-Saxon rule, the toppling of Eric actually opened the door for none other than Olaf Sigtryggsson to return. After he was last driven out of Jorvik, he had been king of Dublin for a while, but in 947 he was driven out and since then he had been looking for something else to do. Now, in 949, he returned to Jorvik and re-established himself as king in the city. Interestingly enough, Idrid didn't seem to mind so much. At least he didn't launch a new punitive military campaign into Northumbria. Maybe this was because Olaf wasn't just some random viking, but rather his brother's godson. Maybe it was because Idrid realized that he needed a Scandinavian client king in Jorvik to keep Northumbria in check. And maybe it was convenient from his perspective that this client king was his brother's godson. Better the devil you know and all that. Or maybe he was just sick of invading Northumbria. We'll never know. Either way. Olaf Sigtryggsson's second reign as king of Jorvik would prove to be short. Already in 952, the Northumbrians kicked him out again and replaced him with none other than Eric Bloodaxe, who returned to Jorvik to have another go at being king there. Unfortunately, we don't know what caused the Northumbrians to depose Olaf Sigtryggsson a second time, or what role, if any, Eric played in the ousting of Olaf. Olaf Sigtryggsson returned to Ireland never again to rule Jorvik. Eric Bloodaxe's second reign was equally short, and in 954 the fickle Northumbrians expelled him too. Like so many other occasions, the details surrounding Eric's second downfall are frustra frustratingly unclear. But we do know that he was forced to leave Jorvik and travelled northwest, either fleeing into exile or in the hope of gathering military support to regain the throne he'd lost twice at this point. Whatever his plans might have been, he only got as far as Stainmore in the main pass through the northern Pennines mountain range. There, Eric, together with his son and his brother, was killed 
even treacherously assassinated, according to some sources. Eric Bloodaxe would turn out to be the last king of Jorvik. After Eric had fled and been killed, the Viking kingdom he had ruled was definitely incorporated into this new political entity called England. And according to some sources, one of the people behind Eric's murder was granted control over Northumbria by the English king. Like some other prominent Vikings, over time, the memory of the real person Eric Haraldson has developed and morphed into this mythical character Eric Bloodaxe, and today, more than a thousand years later, it's impossible to know what is fact and what is fiction in the stories we're told about the last king of Jorvik. In the sagas, Eric is described as a Viking hero who reaps plenty of short-term political success with a special brand of charm and brute force, but who ultimately fails to translate that success into long-term stable reign, since he lacked many of the essential qualities needed in a ruler. The Heimskringla, a saga about the early kings of Norway, describes Eric as a large and handsome man, strong and of great prowess, a great and victorious warrior, but also violent of disposition, cruel, gruff, and taciturn. Not exactly the best characteristics for a successful monarch. By now, you've probably caught on to the fact that the political situation in Jorvik was far from stable. All throughout the period of Scandinavian rule, the city was rocked by an invasion or a palace coup every few years. But none of these political upheavals seem to have had any particular long-lasting effect on the city's economic development. Jorvik was thriving under Scandinavian rule, and that was probably a contributing factor to why there were so many candidates who were keen on ruling the city. Under its Viking kings, Jorvik enjoyed being hooked up to the Viking trade network, a network that reached from the North Atlantic to the Caspian Sea and the Persian Gulf in the east and the Mediterranean in the south. Archaeologists who conducted an extensive five-year excavation in central York in the second half of the 1970s made some fascinating discoveries. These include some exquisite objects, such as a silk cap and seashells from the Red Sea and a completely useless axe head made of amber. But, perhaps most interesting of all, they also found religious objects belonging to both Christians and the Scandinavian pre-Christian religion. That's an indication not only that Jorvik had a mixed Christian and pagan population, but also that the Christians can't have been in a position to ban pagan religious expressions, as they tended to do whenever and whenever they grew strong enough. In other words, Jorvik must have had a significant Scandinavian non-Christian population, large enough to defend itself against any Christian attempts to assert any religious monopoly in the city. When the Vikings arrived and took over in 866, the city was still a mix of Roman and Anglo-Saxon architecture with a Christian Anglo-Saxon population. Over the years, the new Scandinavian settlers added their own contribution to the urban landscape a contribution that is still visible today. Jorvik flourished in a few way few other cities and towns in the British Isles did at the time. By the year 1000, the growth had brought the city to a population of, of approximately 10,000 people, second only to London. A sign of Jorvik's importance is the fact that coins were minted here. In fact, 
all the coins of minted in Scandinavian Britain appear to have been minted in Jorvik, a sign of the strong position the city held as an economic and commercial center. The Romans, who were known as master road builders, hadn't disappointed when they colonized Britain. The old Roman roads and walls surrounding Jorvik were still used when the Vikings took over the city. But as the economic boom brought with it urban expansion, the Scandinavians started to enlarge the city in the first half of the 10th century. New streets lined with timber houses were added to the existing Roman streets. Today, the names of several of the streets in central York still remind us of the, their Scandinavian origin. Conveniently enough, many of these streets can be identified by the fact that they are confusingly called gate, even though they don't lead up to any of the openings in the historic city walls. For example, Newgate, Micklegate, and Skeldegate. And that's because gate, in this context, has nothing to do with doorways, but rather is a corruption of the Scandinavian word for street. Another place in contemporary York with Scandinavian connections is King Square, a place that's located immediately outside the east gate of the Roman camp out of which the city grew. The square was known to the Scandinavians as King's Yard, and the gatehouse of the Roman East Gate might very well have been uh, the basis for the royal castle in Jorvik when its Viking kings resided there. One of the best-known medieval Icelandic sagas, Ale Saga, includes a few dramatic scenes taking place in this royal castle in Jorvik. So, the Scandinavians lost control of Jorvik in 954, when Eric Bloodaxe was exiled and killed. The kingdom was demoted to an English earldom, and the defunct title King of Jorvik was replaced by the Earl of York. In the late 14th century, the earldom was upgraded to a dukedom, and the title Duke of York is still in use today, customarily bestowed on the second son of the British monarch. True to tradition, the title is currently held by Andrew, the disgraced second son of the Queen of England. Scandinavian kings would continue to try and regain control over northern England for another century or so. The last Viking king who came close was the king of Norway, Harald Hardrada, who died trying at the Battle of Stamford Bridge in the historic year of 1066. In the following decades, Danish Vikings made a few attempts to recapture Jorvik, but they never again managed to create a stable and long-lasting foothold in Northumbria. Next time, will cross the English Channel and return to Francia in the footsteps of yet another legendary Viking, Rollo. We'll follow his career from Viking marauder to Frankish nobleman, establishing not only a dynasty, but a more or less independent Scandinavian colony within the Kingdom of Francia. We'll also see how his descendants spread out over Europe, conquering lands as far away as the Mediterranean Sea, but most famously, England. The English had just been able to chase away the last Viking king of Jorvik, but little did they know that a hundred years later, the Vikings, or at least descendants of Vikings, would be back. And this time, they would crush the Anglo-Saxon kingdom. I hope you'll join me then.